If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the fourth of our December 2011 podcasts. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com, and you can follow us twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week... That's the wonderful thing about this system. On the one hand, we have these brilliant underground structures still surviving, but what, what's so helpful from my point of view is we also have a huge number of um, original documents relating to them, starting from as early as uh, the 1300s. That was Mark Stoyle in Exeter's Underground Passages. We found quite a number of people who drown just washing their hands and faces. That was Stephen Gunn on Tudor Accidents. Southampton University's Professor Mark Stoyle has written the cover story for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, and in that he's exploring what happened when Christmas was cancelled during the Civil War in the mid-17th century. While he was working on the piece, however, he told me about another interesting project that he's been working on, which is to write a book about the historic passages that lie under the city of Exeter in Devon. That sounded like an interesting subject for a podcast, particularly when he agreed to take me for a tour around them. So, this interview is a bit different to our normal fare in that it's recorded on location. 
If you like this, we can try and do more, and if you don't like it, we won't repeat the experiment. So tell me what you think either way. And do keep listening throughout, because there is a more traditional interview all about the Cromwellian Christmas embedded in the middle of the subterranean expedition. Right, let's go underground. I'm here with, with Mark Stoyle, Professor Mark Stoyle. We're uh, in Exeter. Well, actually, we're not in Exeter. We're underneath Exeter. Yeah. Um, and Exeter, of course, one of Britain's oldest cities, got Roman origins. Um, and we're about to go down into, into the bowels of the city, into, the, into its famous underground passages. So, Mark, could you just give me a little taste of, of what we're about to do? What are the underground passages and, and where are we going? Well, the underground passages are a pretty unique system um, in these islands, which were originally built um, for the purposes of water supply. And they're built to channel um, lead aqueduct pipes into the city, um, under the city walls and under the various buildings, so that the pipes can be got at for the purposes of maintenance and repair without having to dig up um, huge quantities of earth and destroy buildings. And what sort of period are we talking here? That's one of the fascinating things about this system. It evolves over time. So the earliest, the very earliest sections are going back to the the. the th- 1300s, but from that time onwards they've been added to and changed and altered over the years, so they've evolved over time. And the very latest parts are actually um, Georgian. Okay, and this is it's quite a big tourist attraction for the city. A lot of people come here. We've just been told about 20,000 people a year. Yeah. But we're about to go into a bit that the tourists don't normally go to. That's right. right. Yeah, Excellent. we're, we're going to start off with an older piece, which is quite narrow, not particularly easy of access, uh, and so not, not very easy to take a tour down here, obviously, but as it's just the two of us, I think it would be simple for us to go and have a look at it. Okay, we have our hard hats on, our yeah. torches ready. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're crouching down now in this in this narrow, um, slightly slightly greenish, mouldy section. So, w- w- what are we doing here? Where are we now? Well, we're at the moment we're um, right underneath the old city wall, and we're actually in the bottom or underneath the city ditch, the defensive ditch that ran all the way around the city. And at this point, the line of the water pipes was um, driven into Exeter under the city wall. And obviously, that took a great deal of work. They had to take down a section of wall to lay um, the pipes underneath it. They didn't want to have to do that again. And so uh, in the 1300s, the cathedral authorities who owned this particular water pipe, which was the first one um, brought into Exeter, um, they actually built uh, a low passageway uh, right under the city wall to allow the ditch, um, to allow the, the pipe to come into it through the ditch. And this is the section of passage which we're just about to go into. It's the cathedral passage of the 1340s. Okay, so this is the medieval, the, the, the earliest section. Yes, basically. this is the earliest long surviving section we're just about to enter here. Right. And as we go, you'll see that the, the brickwork, the stonework changes, and that's reflecting the fact the different ages of these different sections. Okay. Okay, so we're, wait, so we're in a tunnel, it's a brick, uh, it's, it's, well it's not brick, is it? is it brick or is it stone? It's, it's the oldest bits are all stone, yeah. some of the later bits are brick, and you can see here there's a, a brick vault which shows that this bit is considerably later, yeah. but looking in there you've got an ancient medieval arched vault, and that's all built with the local stone. The tunnel here is only four or five foot high, isn't it? We're crouching maybe even a less, less. so is this, is this the height it was, or there's, is it, has anything happened, is this how, how, how yeah. deep it would have been? The section we're about to go into is at its original height. I mean, it may have been slightly deepened, but I think not. I think when we were about to go into a section which would look very much as it would have done to the medieval craftsmen and, of course, the plumbers and artisans who came down to fix the pipes. Okay, let's, let's go. Okay, should we head on? And this is also, I should say, where we run out of um, the lighting, so we rely on our own torches from here on. Okay. 
this is a nice section. You've got uh, a really good view here of the, the stonework. And as you can see, it's very good quality, uh, very well preserved. And just here above us, um, this is an original uh, medieval outlet that was designed um, to allow a pipe or an air vent, perhaps, to go up to the surface from here under, underneath. So this would have been built at the time as the main passage here. Right, so we're looking at basically a chimney going up into... Uh up to the up to street level. That's right. Yeah. Which is about what about twenty foot above us, maybe something like that. Perhaps yeah, perhaps a little bit less. Yeah. But just at this spot, and we're now just behind the city wall. We're in the uh, the garden of St John's Hospital or the grounds of St John's Hospital, uh, which was um, a foundation that looked after poor people really um, behind the walls. And um, this goes up into the garden there, and it would have allowed a pipe to go up to that that area. Right. Okay. So this it, it all looks um, pretty well built. Doesn't yes. It? I mean. So Someone has, has gone to quite a lot of effort Enormous to, trouble. to produce this. So Absolutely. What, what, why, what's the point here? Why, why have they made it so well? Well, I mean, obviously this is built by the cathedral craftsmen, so, you know, one of the, the very wealthiest um, local um, institutions, so they had a lot of money, uh, they had a lot of resources, and also um, they were keen to make sure that this water supply worked, because it wasn't just uh, supplying the cathedral, um, it would also supply St Nicholas Priory, which is in the west side of the city, and part of the water was also used for the citizens themselves. So this is, you know, the main piped water supply into medieval Exeter, and they want to make sure that it functions as well as possible with as few glitches as possible as well. Right. So just on the, on the pipe front then, mm. so um, there would have been a pipe just laying on the floor Absolutely, here, yeah. And what, what, how big would this pipe have been? Well, um, it would be a lead pipe, um, as you say, laid along the base of the floor. Now, sections of that pipe were actually surviving up until the 1940s, but unfortunately in the wake of the Second World War, um, metal theft, which is a problem very familiar to us now, was also taking place then, and the, the pipe was actually stolen away and melted down. So quite a small pipe, though, with, with a very large tunnel around it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a small pipe. I mean, I suppose one of the things we should stress is that although this is bringing water into the city, the quantities are enormous. I mean, it's nothing like the sort of thing we'd be used to. It's essentially bringing in a relatively small quantity of high-grade water that people could use primarily for cooking purposes and also sometimes for drinking. And people would actually queue at the fountains um, to get the water that they needed to use at home uh, and then take it away. And would there have been anything else going on in these tunnels? I mean, these were the service tunnels for that pipe, but would there, would there have been any other uses of this tunnel in the medieval period? Well, um, other things did happen here from time to time, but that was the essential purpose. It is designed to allow the cathedral plumbers um, and their workmen and helpers to get to the pipes easily, uh, to make repairs in this section um, without needing to disturb the ground. This is an interesting spot. This is how they actually got into it. This right. is the manhole. Okay. <laughs> so we're stood up here in, in one of these, as I described it, a chimney just now, which is yeah. basically, we can, fit, we can fit both of us in here, but you wouldn't get anyone else in really. Well, yeah. maybe one more person. Yeah. And we've got uh, another another few, well, another few feet above our head. And then, so that's, so what's, what's, what's up there? This is directly beneath the new Princess Hay shopping centre. Right. So there's a shop directly above us here now. So this is how the, the plumbers would have would have come down. So would there, would there have been actually a, a manhole, as we understand that? There, there would have been, yeah, with a trap door over it at the surface. So this is again, uh, I think it's just in the hospital garden still. There would have been a trap door over the top. Uh, the plumbers could have simply unlocked that, open it up, and then come down into the system. And you can see in the side of the wall these holes. That's for them to put their their feet in as they're making their way down. Right. So, so they're footholds. 
Okay, and what, how, how will they have lit their way down here just by tallow candles? Yeah, absolutely. We've got, we've got um, a lot of accounts for the city system where they're constantly buying candles right. um, to use in the vaults, as they put it. Yep. And in the last years of the underground passages' um, sort of use as a, a water system, we know they used lanterns. Right. And they still came in through similar trapdoors like this. Did anything bad ever happen to them? Do we know of any accidents that they had when they were down here? We don't know of anything, surprisingly. Um, it, it seems as if the system wasn't quite deep enough for really bad air to circulate. Yeah. But it's interesting that one of the 17th century terms they used for this system was the damps, right. which has a sort of suggestion of bad air underground. Yeah. Uh, and that was the way it was often used at the time. So they may have been slightly worried about the poor quality of the air down here. But we don't know of any um, serious, let alone fatal accidents. And, and presumably this was a closed system, i.e. people couldn't come, couldn't, you know, it wasn't open to the public. Absolutely, that, you know, yeah. So people were not falling down here and, and coming to it's interesting you say that, Dave, because in the, uh, the 16th century and the 17th century, there are lots of complaints uh, in the local Leet court about trapdoors to the passages being badly maintained, and they were obviously worried about people falling into the, the holes and hurting themselves. We don't know that happened, but the fact they were worried about it suggests it might have done. Hmm. OK. And um, I should also say, that's where the first um, section ends. Right. Because... This is where the cathedral, the original cathedral passage, which runs from um, the garden of the hospital to the outside of the city wall, that's where it stopped, where this um, entrance point is. Yeah. And there would have been probably just um, a, a stone wall, roughly where we're standing now. Right. But then, um, in later years, it was decided to extend the passages. So this piece that we're about to head to next is probably rather later. We're not sure of the exact date, um, but you can probably see up there, Dave, that the stonework has changed. And I should warn you, it's getting a bit lower here. Now again, this is this is almost certainly the original height. Well, I'm sure it is actually. So you can see it's not that generous space-wise. No. So this wouldn't have been a very uh, a very comfortable place to be working. Definitely it? not. I think it would be an extremely uncomfortable place to work in. Do we know? Here I come. Yeah, gotcha. Do we know what sort of people were were doing the work in here? So what, do, what sort of what sort of uh, I presume it was men who were who were doing the job, or was it boys? Yeah, no, well, it was both, um, as you rightly say. Um, we, we've got a lot of evidence for this, again, particularly from the city records, and um, the city kept its own um, sort of retained plumber, um, who was in charge of the whole water supply system, and he—it was always a he—would have got to know these passages extremely well because he would have been working in them sort of on and off right through his period in office, um, and these these plumbers were assisted usually as you say by their own boys who would have come down with them and also by other workmen who helped them out with various other tasks. The most specialised task of course was looking after the pipes themselves, making sure the water got into the city, checking the whole system ran properly but there was an awful lot of spade work, digging up pipes, mending the banks on which the pipes ran, mending the passages themselves and that would have been done by rather less specialised labourers. Um, so the plumber would have had a team of people, it was often termed the plumber and his company. And obviously you're a historian, yeah. much more than an archaeologist, yeah. so you're, you've been looking at the records to, to understand this. So is there a lot of record evidence that we can yeah. understand? To, 
to see what's going on. That's the wonderful thing about the system. On the one hand, we have these brilliant um, underground structures still surviving. Um, but what, what's so helpful from my point of view is we also have a huge number of um, original documents relating to them, starting from as early as uh, the 1300s, um, even a little before, and then just getting better and better as time goes on. And for the 16th and 17th century, particularly for the city, we've got really voluminous records that help us to, to work out what was actually happening down here and, and how they were run and maintained. And it's worth making the point here that, that um, as you said, the, the pipes are coming in from elsewhere, so yep. the tunnels don't the tunnels don't go right across the city. So the, 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 the pipes would have been dug down into the into the earth, That's places right. where access wasn't required. Absolutely, yeah. For most of their length, they ran in a simple pipe trench underground, just a literally a trench dug deep pipe in the bottom, back, back filled with earth. But in these places where access was difficult, that's where they built these special passages. So you're quite right. This is the furthest point that we can go into the city on the cathedral system today. But in the old days, this would have gone a, a little bit further, perhaps another 100, perhaps 50 yards or so. But this section was destroyed in the Second World War or in the aftermath of the war. Right. Um, so now this is the terminal point. Originally the passage would have gone on some way in this direction, getting shallower and shallower until eventually the pipe simply reverted to an earth trench. Right, right. And, and the access was difficult in these places here because there was stuff on top, there was A roads and buildings. Absolutely, yeah. What they tended to do was to run the pipes um, under roads where they could in cities because obviously those are easier to dig up than buildings. But at the points where it went under either particularly busy sections of road or big buildings, um, awkward buildings, that's when they'd build these, these tunnels. Mm. And, and, you know, it's one of, one of today's great, great concerns, isn't it, roads being dug up for, for utilities. So was that an issue at the time? Would, would people have been concerned about having... You know, workmen digging up their roads, even in the medieval period. Yeah, I think they would have been, because one of the one of the awkward things about this system of water supply is it comes into Exeter underneath um, the east gate, or at least the city section does. That was the main point of access to the city from the east, from London. Obviously, it would have been a massive nuisance to be constantly digging up the road there. So again, having these passages in that area does prevent that problem. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very modern solution to a problem that seems very modern to us. Yeah. 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 So here we are still in the ditch, and we're just going to go, this is a, a slightly more modern section of passage, and here, this is quite interesting, this was put in during World War II, this white paint, because this was actually used as a shelter in the Blitz. Ah, right, yes. Um, so quite a lot of Exeter people still remember, well they did 10, 15 years ago, sort of drinking in Exeter you know, at night during the Blitz and then when the sirens sound be coming down here. I mean, I can see uh, how uncomfortable it would have been in the uh, tube under London, Yeah. but here it would have been, well, I mean, there's only um, a one person's width and you can just about stand up. That's so, right. Uh, with bombs raining down, that wouldn't have been much fun. It would have been terrifying. I always think that would have been the worst time to have been in the passages. Um, and again, as you were saying, the, the different uses to which they were put, no one would have envisaged when these were built <laughs> that they'd be used as air raid shelters. We're actually going along the line of the city ditch now. Right. So here, the pipe would have been open to the elements okay. um, during you know, the Civil War period and shortly afterwards. Yep. But then, um, the ditch gradually got covered over 
And as a result, they decided to, to, to passage this bit as well. And you can see here we're in a brick section, and this was built during the Georgian period. Right, OK. Um, so if we'd been on this spot in medieval times, we'd have been in the bottom of the city ditch, just outside the city wall. Is this the latest section then, or was there anything that, uh, that followed it? Yeah, this is the latest section, the one we're in now, of the 1770s and just after, is the very latest bit that you can get at today. So you ought to tell me just, while we're here, while we're stood somewhere yeah. comfortable, <laughs> um, what, what you're interested in it is because, you, I mean, you've written mostly on sort of civil war history, I think it's fair to say, so yeah. why, 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 are you, why are you down here taking <laughs> interest in, in underground passages? Well, I've always been interested in archaeology, and I got into history through archaeology in the first place, um, and these, these tunnels are, I think, something, or passages, are of great interest really to all Exeter people with an interest in their past, so having grown up in this city, I think that drew me to them as well. But another point really I should stress is that they have um, that they were used and they were quite important at the time of the Civil War um, so in that period as well we know a good deal about what's happening in the passages um, obviously people were worried at that time they might be used as means of getting into the city from outside um, so the work that I've done on the Civil War in some ways does key into that interest in the passages. Hmm. And you're writing about the passages now? Yes at the moment we're just in the midst of um, writing a, a sort of a proper history if you like of the passages and the aqueduct of Exeter over time, really from their genesis in the um, sort of 11 and 1200s, right up to the time when they ceased being used at the end of Queen Victoria's reign. Okay. okay. Now, um, will we see any sections where they were blocked up in the Civil War? Uh, we will. Oh, yes, we will. <laughs> right, okay. Because, um, I mean, this, it seemed like an absolute moment, seeing as we're comfortable to yeah. briefly mention the Civil War yeah. um, and, and to take the topic away from the Underground Passage. Right. Moment, <laughs> yeah, of course. Because it's coming up to Christmas. Yeah. Um, and uh, you've written an excellent feature oh, for the you. magazine for this month, which is about, um, about Christmas in the Civil War period. Yeah. And, uh, and and what happened to Christmas? And we've been sort of considering whether Christmas was banned. So, just can you just give me a little take on, on what happened to Christmas in the Civil War? Well, I mean, Christmas suffers uh, in a number of ways. And I think, obviously, uh, because England was actually undergoing this terrible civil conflict where everyone was really on the front line, it wasn't just the men who were fighting, but women and children and families as well were swept up in this awful conflict. It became very difficult for anyone, really, to enjoy themselves in the way that they'd done before the Civil War. Um, obviously, uh, money was tighter, there were enormous taxes, the soldiers of both sides were taking goods and money um, people had their, their fathers their sons away from home fighting I think no one would have been in the same sort of mood to enjoy Christmas as they had been in the past and at the same time they wouldn't have had the resources to do so, but what made matters still worse was that um, on the parliamentarian side at least there were many who had a settled animus against Christmas and had decided by this time um, that it was um, a popish or semi-Catholic feast uh, that it had no place in the household of true Christians and that it should in fact the festival should be abolished and was it actually banned? Was, was Christmas yeah, curtailed? It, it, it was curtailed. The, the parliamentarians, I think at the beginning of the Civil War, it was only a relatively small number of quite fanatical Puritan parliamentarians who wished to see this happen. But over time, and particularly thanks to Parliament's alliance with the Scots, this became more and more mainstream, until eventually towards the end of the Civil War, um, Parliament did actually decree that people should not celebrate Christmas, and that um, instead it should just be regarded as any other normal day and I mean you can imagine that this stirred up a sort of a hornet's nest of um, unrest and um, disappointment not just amongst the royalists who are obviously ideologically opposed to what the parliamentarians were doing but also amongst many ordinary people and even
even perhaps many parliamentarians who didn't feel that they should go that far. Was, so was there a popular reaction? Did people say, we want Christmas? Yeah, I think people did. And of course, at the time of the Civil War itself, um, the, the, the pressure which I've already mentioned of the soldiery on the citizens was such that very little could be done. There might have been some muttering, some discontent, some unhappiness. But the, the problems that the country was facing as a result of the Civil War were so great that there were no... Um, protests at that time. But once the Civil War was over and the Royalists had been defeated and England was back to a sort of uh, uneasy calm, then there were a series of popular riots and protests against the banning of Christmas, interestingly enough mainly in the old parliamentarian quarters in the south and east of England. Okay. Um, I think that's, that's enough for Christmas. Great. Should, should, <laughs> Christmas should we carry on done. with the past? Yes, we do. Uh. <laughs> So we've got, just to sort of to, to get our bearings, yeah. we've got the cathedral section where the cathedral was the base, the, the, the prime leader in That's getting right. the water, and the, and the water they were, they were plumbing in was for their use yes. almost exclusively? Uh, primarily for them, it was their system, they owned it, they owned the well, yep. they owned the bulk of the water, but they entered into an agreement with um, St Nicholas Priory and the citizens that each of the others should get a third of the water once it had been brought to the cathedral close. Right. So the water is first brought to the cathedral close, um, it's um, kept in a big uh, fountain or reservoir there from where the cathedral clergy gather their water, but then some of the water is funneled off in subsidiary pipelines to the citizens and the priory. But yeah, the, the cathedral people get first claim. But after that, after that period, then the citizens start to think, well, actually, we could do with some, some proper water ourselves. So they start to introduce their own system. That's right, exactly. And we think that that's because as the city was growing, I mean, Exeter was always a big city, um, but during the 15th century, it begins to rocket upwards until it becomes one of the very largest cities in England. And we think that because of that massive population rise, um, it meant that with more and more people, a lot of the local wells were getting more polluted by human effluent and so forth. So they decided for that reason, reason in part it would be good to have their own water supply and I think it must also have reflected a desire for prestige you know having an aqueduct showed that you were powerful that you were wealthy that you were someone who mattered so for the citizens to have their own aqueduct rather than as you suggest just hanging off the cathedral one I think that gave them a greater sense of their own authority as well. Hmm. So one of the one of the questions that immediately springs to mind is why Exeter, you talked about the, 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 mm. the civil prestige, the civic prestige yeah. of Exeter, um, and, and this would have been a prestigious thing to have. Yeah. Did other cities have this? Many other cities had aqueducts, um, and they were all worked in very similar, very similar ways. They were brought from springs outside those cities into the cities themselves along lead pipes, and that was very common for monasteries as well during the medieval period. Um, but these passages are much more unusual, these sort of long tunnels built to cover them, um, and they don't seem to exist, certainly not to the same size uh, in other cities. Certainly this is the only um, medieval or early modern aqueduct tunnel like this which you can actually visit um, in England today. And we don't think there were ever very many of them. Um, so this is, it's a pretty unique structure. And um, I don't know if you can see in there, there's like a loop or an arch, an archway. Okay, yeah. What that is, is a um, defensive uh, casement, casemate rather, from which they could fire cannon out along the city ditch. Right. Um, and that was put in, we think, in the 1490s. And it was also used again in the Civil War, when they definitely had uh, a piece of, of cannon or artillery mounted in a chamber underneath the East Gate. We think that was this chamber here. So the tunnels actually had a, a defensive purpose? They did at this point, yeah. because the city, the city passages started to be built around the 1490s. And when they were built, um, they were built right through uh, the, the, 
how can I put it, the floor of the ditch, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and they realised they could use that structure in a defensive way to enfilade fire along the base of the ditch itself. Right. Um, so yeah, that was that was a point where it was realised the passages could have a dual purpose that was both um, aquatic and defensive, if you like. I suppose you're not going to be able to tell me that there's been you know running battles in the tunnels themselves, though. No, sadly not. It'd be quite difficult, wouldn't it? It'd be hard to swing a sword. It, it would be difficult, but they were frightened that that would happen. And one of the interesting things about these tunnels from a Civil War historian's perspective is the fear that was felt about them at the beginning of the conflict. And it was decided before um, hostilities even really broke out down here that the passages would have to be blocked up. Um, to stop people infiltrating the city um, and the city authorities ordered that the city passage in this area should be blocked up with stones and earth mm-hmm. and they also blocked up the cathedral passage at the same time um, so that caused a, a great deal of kerfuffle down here and uh, many problems later when all the earth had to be taken back out again yeah yeah so what does this what does this tell us about um uh, medieval and later attitudes to water then on the sort of the bigger picture. Was there a lot of concern about water supply and how people got their water? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, then as now, water was absolutely essential for life. Um, everyone needed to get hold of water. But I think having a supply of pure spring water of this type, um, that did give you a sort of particular status, I think. That was the water that was most needed for domestic purposes. So they would have used this water um, for primarily for cooking, probably. Um, the higher-ranking people probably wouldn't have drunk water much as, as, as a drink on its own. That was seen as, as, as rather more for ordinary folk. Um, so we've got, um, there's, a, there's a 16th century chronicler, John Hooker, who actually tells us that the, the rich people in Exeter used the water from the Cundits to dress their meat or to cook, whereas the poor used it for drinking. Um, but certainly the fact that both the cathedral and the city have these pure supplies is very much um, it's a sign of status as well as something that's very helpful for the people themselves. And although I haven't really touched on this, Dave, um, it's worth pointing out that there were a number of monasteries in Exeter during the pre-Reformation period, and most of those had their own supplies of water as well, again brought in through aqueducts. Um, and again, I think that shows um, the necessity of having a good supply of, of, of pure water and also the status that it was felt to confer on an institution. So did, did the, the, the lesser burghers of, of Exeter have access to the water supply when they wanted it or not? They did, yeah. Um, what happened with the water, um, let's, let's look at the city system in particular then, um, it was taken down the city, uh, first of all in these passages down the high street and then later in an aqueduct trench, and the water um, from that pipe uh, was sent up to the surface via feed pipes into several small um, fountains. Um, or pundits, as they were termed at the time. And at those points, um, local people of, of any rank, really, could um, queue there with their um, receptacles for water. Um, then they could scoop water out of the fountains. They usually drew it, actually, from, from brass cocks or taps. And then they would take it home, you know, for whatever purpose they needed it. So you, I think we should envisage these fountains or pundits being surrounded by, you know, small crowds of people queuing um, with their, their buckets and their pitchers um, to gain the water they needed. And did the, the, the fact that Exeter had this water system make the city anyway more healthy than other cities in the area or in England and Britain generally? That's a really interesting question. I think it probably did. I think it did mean that you had 
access um, to good water that you knew wasn't polluted, whereas cities that were simply relying on rivers and wells wouldn't have had that. So I think it must have given Exeter a bit of an edge. Um, but even so, I mean, I should stress that because the quantity of water brought in is relatively small, the great majority of people are still getting most of their water from less pure sources. And certainly Exeter suffers just as much as um, anywhere else in the sort of the epidemics and plagues of the time. Um, and in fact, um, the great um, cholera um, epidemic that hit Exeter in the 1830s and to a lesser extent the 1840s, that was one of the spurs that decided the city fathers that they really couldn't just go on relying um, on these rather antiquated systems of water like the aqueducts and water brought um, by various means from the River X close beside the city. And they decided instead to institute a really modern water supply um, which was set in train soon after and that's what supplied the city ever since. So, having you know, studied the documents, seen what's going yeah. on down here, and been down here quite a lot, yeah. have you have you come across any really good stories, any 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 juicy stories that you ought to you ought to tell the tell the listening podcast audience? Well, I mean, I think that there aren't so many um, incredible stories of sort of daring do, if you like. The time that these systems were most involved in national events is during the Civil War, when they were seen as a great threat to the city and they had to be closed down. Um, but for most of the time, although there are all these stories that circulate on them that they were used as um, escape routes from the cities, that monks used to flee along them, that ghosts frequent them and so forth. On the contrary, they seem to have been fairly utilitarian structures that were simply used for the purpose of bringing water into the city and for most of the time remained very obscure. The only people who would have known about them, uh, who would have known about them in depth, were the plumbers and the workmen who actually came down here to repair the system. There's one occasion before the Civil War when we know that the city councillors or a small group of them actually came down here to inspect the tunnels because they were frightened of how they might be used by royalist enemies outside. But that's the only time from the, the medieval and um, early modern documents that we know that any of the great city high-ups actually came down here. So I think they, they remain pretty obscure throughout most of Exeter's history and there weren't that many really exciting events down here that we know of, although there may have been accidents and perhaps even fatalities, as you say, during the construction of the system. I suppose you're going to tell me now that you've never seen the ghost of the man on the bicycle. <laughs> I'm afraid I never have. And having spent um, a long time down here over the years, um, I've never seen any strange manifestations. But there's no doubt that um, it is quite a strange, sort of unusual place. And you've, as you've already noticed, Dave, there are sort of chill, biting winds that come down the passages from time to time, which I think if you were working down here by yourself, just by the light of a guttering candle, might have been quite frightening things to have encountered. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. That was Professor Mark Stoyle of Southampton University. His book on Exeter's underground passages will be published next year. You can, if you're in Exeter, visit the underground passages yourself. You'll find details at exeter.gov.uk slash passages. You'll also find a slideshow on our website with some photographs of the passengers. Go to historyextra.com slash passengers for that. And if you're interested in visiting Britain's heritage sites or know someone who is, don't forget that the BBC History magazine book, 100 Places That Made Britain, written by myself and published by BBC Books, is on sale now and would make a great late Christmas present. Do look out for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine as well, on sale now in the UK with the full story of the cancellation of Christmas under Cromwell, written by Mark Stoyle. Now it's time for our historical trivia moment. This week's bit of trivia has been provided to us by Andy Marshall of Bristol, who aside from being a history enthusiast, also happens to be the MD of the company that publishes BBC History magazine, so thank you Andy. The Anglo-Zanzibar War was fought between the United Kingdom and Zanzibar on 27 August 1896. The conflict lasted 38 minutes and is the shortest war in history. The immediate cause of the war was the death of the pro-British Sultan Bin Tuani on 25 August 1896 and the subsequent succession of Sultan Khalid Bin Bargash. The British authorities preferred Hamad Bin Mohammed, who was more favourable to British interests as Sultan. Andy's observation on the whole thing is, I don't know much about what actually happened and how it could have lasted less than half a footy match. Okay, if anyone would like to email in with further interesting historical facts, we'll gladly read them out here, if they're true, of course, and give you a name check in return. Email us at podcast.historyextra.com with any facts that you think deserve a wider audience. Our next interview is with Dr Stephen Gunn of Oxford University, who's written in our Christmas issue about the perils of rivers, lakes and other watercourses to life and limb in Tudor England. This is part of a broader project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council that he is leading all about accidental death and everyday life in 16th century England. You've got a, a project um, which you're working on, uh, which, is, which in essence is investigating accidental death uh, and everyday life in 16th century England. Um, so can you just introduce us to that? What, what are you doing and what sort of things are you trying to find out here? We're working on a project which will run for four years. We're funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. uh, And the aim is to look at about 9,000 coroner's inquests into people who died in accidents in the 16th century. 
These are the kind of reports that medieval historians have used to look at family life and working practices and things like that, but they only survive very patchily for the Middle Ages, whereas for the 16th century we've got uh, accidents from every year of the century and we've got accidents from the whole country. So what we hope is that we can get a much clearer picture of what sorts of things were dangerous uh, and what sorts of things people were doing all day when they met their end in these uh, accidents. And what are, so what are these sources that you're looking at, these coroner's inquests, and how, how, how do they, what form do they take? The reports survive as uh, individual reports on each death. Uh, they were uh, the product of inquests held by coroners where they would call together a jury of local men, uh, ask them what had happened. Uh, it looks from other evidence as though quite often they would have the body there, so people would be looking at the body, and often they talk in detail if there are wounds about how big the wounds are, where they are on the body. Uh, they delivered a verdict which would be either that the person was murdered by somebody, in which case it then instigated a murder trial, or that somebody had committed suicide, in which case then the uh, person's goods were forfeited to the king, or that the death was an accident. And uh, sadly, in a way, historians have looked at the murder ones because they're interested in violence between people and whether the murder rate's gone down over time and so on. They've looked at the suicides because they've been interested in whether uh, despair is a modern phenomenon and uh, suicide was rarer or different in earlier centuries, but they've never really looked at the accidents, whereas we think that the accidents actually tell you about a much wider variety of things that people were doing and relationships between people and what went on all day than either the murders or the suicides do. So these documents were compiled by the coroners and then handed in by the coroners to the assized justices as they toured around the country uh, holding trials for important things like murder. Um, and uh, those assized judges then brought them back in to the centre of government, to Westminster, where they were filed away in the records of the Court of King's Bench. And they still survive amongst the King's Bench records, which are now held at the National Archives in Kew. So a very rich source, and as you said, you've got things for every year through the through the century. There are uh, about two dozen files missing out of the 400 that there would originally have been. Uh, so we've got almost all the records. Uh, it has been shown by people working in detail on the suicide records that some coroners were more efficient than others and that some coroners in particular seem to have been better at reporting on things when they knew the assized judges were just about to come round and collect the records than they were at the other end of the year when they thought nobody was going to come round looking. So these won't enable us to work out uh, absolute uh, rates of death from various different causes, but they should, we hope, enable us to work out the proportions of people who died from different causes. So uh, we can't say this many people drowned in a certain year in the 16th century, but we can say uh, drowning seems to have been a much more dangerous uh, problem than some other kinds of things which are bigger problems today. So for example, now uh, people falling is a major cause of accidental death. That doesn't seem to have been a major cause of accidental death in the 16th century because far more people live in one story or at most two story buildings and because the population in general is much younger so that falls and uh, brittle bones and so on are much less of a problem. 
So just going back to the process, when the, the coroner's inquest, we can actually envisage a group of the best men of the parish sat around in a, in 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 the, or in the manor house with with the body on the table looking at it and, and discussing what happened. Yes, in later centuries it looks as though it often happened in inns uh, or other public buildings. They'd have the body laid out, they'd call in the jurors. Uh, in theory, the jurors would have known exactly what happened. Uh, in some cases, uh, for example, people who are just found dead uh, by the roadside or in a river who are known to be um, travelling beggars. They don't even know the name of the person who's dead. Um, but usually uh, either the jurors themselves or presumably people that they've talked to could give some account of how the accident happened. Obviously what we can't do is get behind that account. So there may be instances where uh, the accident happened in a particular way that it was convenient not to report on in order not to cause more trouble locally and those are things that we can't really get behind. Classic example of that would be uh, we have a man who's washing his horse uh, in a mill pond in Cambridge um, and Cambridge is uh, a town where obviously it's not as easy just to go and wash your horse as it might be if you're in the countryside so he obviously thinks here's a useful big body of water I can go and wash my horse in but he rides his horse into the mill pond and he's then knocked off the horse and drowned by the force of the flowing water. Now it's possible that he just misjudged it and rode into the stream not realising uh, the mill pond, the mill stream, not realising how fast it was flowing. It's equally possible that he rode into a very calm still mill pond and somebody round the corner then opened the sluice gate to start the mill running without looking to check if there was somebody sitting on a horse in the middle of the mill pond. And it may well be then that the jurors thought, well, we won't get the person who opened the sluice gate into trouble. It wasn't his fault. He, how could he expect there would be somebody sitting on a horse in the middle of the mill pond? So they just don't mention it. And obviously there's no way we can get back behind the records to do that. Uh, but then we, um, I think, shouldn't be churlish about how much we can find out from these records. So we should accentuate the positive. So you, you talked about the, sort of the difficulty of, of conducting a statistical analysis on this and, and you know, using the figures that way. Um, but do you get an idea of whether 16th century England was a more dangerous place than it is today? Can you, can you make bold statements like that? You can make bold statements about uh, the kinds of dangers that people faced being different from the dangers that they are now. And you can make bold statements about the kinds of injuries that now wouldn't cause you to die, but then would. So we have numbers of people who have uh, some kind of internal injury from falling or from something falling on top of them or from somebody else crashing into them, um, which presumably now could be dealt with medically and then couldn't. And sometimes they die uh, days or weeks after the accident. We have things which are probably blood poisoning, where people have some kind of wound and they die a few weeks later. Um, so there are things where, uh, with modern medicine, the accident wouldn't have led to death. Um, and there are also uh, activities which, in the 16th century, are much more dangerous than they are now. And fetching water is a great example of that, because um, more than 40% of all deaths in the 16th century um, from the figures we've processed so far are drownings and one in 10 of those drownings uh, are uh, women fetching water um, because at a time when there's no piped water or very little piped water, only the very biggest cities would have piped water um, and uh, even in towns people are often using open wells or water pits in backyards rather than pumps. Uh, 
the dangers of falling into the water when you're trying to fetch some. Particularly, it would seem, in the summer when maybe you have to reach further down into the pit or the well to reach the water, uh, those dangers are, are very considerable. So you've written about the dangers of water in, in, the, in the magazine, when it's a very interesting topic. So, so water was a much more substantial hazard then than it is now, presumably also because of the fact that people weren't so good at swimming. Um, the inability to swim is obviously a big problem uh, because a lot of the people who drown are people who, um, uh, for example, are trying to ford rivers or they fall off bridges or they fall out of boats um, and uh, they can't cope in the water. Now, some of those things are happening with rivers in flood uh, in winter where presumably the force of the water even now would be such that people would have difficulty even if they could swim. Um, but also a lot of people are falling into comparatively shallow water uh, and still are unable to, to cope in it, um, which suggests that the fact that very few people could swim was a major problem. Um, there is a bit of a swimming craze in the, in the later 16th century, uh, but it's amongst uh, well-brought-up young men, in particular university students. Um, the first book on how to swim it, it, in, produced in England is written by a Cambridge academic. Um, there are drownings at Grantchester, which is uh, the uh, place that Cambridge students will still go for tea um, outside Cambridge, um, and it, it's a place where people will go and swim in the river in the 16th century, and there are numbers of drownings there in the later 16th century, some of them uh, certainly of, of Cambridge students, so much so that the university authorities tried to ban people from going swimming anywhere in Cambridgeshire uh, on pain of uh, a public beating uh, in the hall of their college for the first offence and expulsion from the university for a second offence, but students being students, as many students drowned after the ban as drowned before it. Uh, so trying to learn to swim was an option, but even that was quite dangerous uh, because there weren't swimming pools. Um, the, the, the book uh, by Everard Digby on how to swim, which is published uh, in the 1580s, uh, talks at great length about all the sorts of bodies of water in which you shouldn't try to learn to swim because it's so dangerous. Um, you need something that's not too fast flowing but has a clear bottom, uh, is not overhung by trees, it's not too windy, uh, it's not too many plants along the side of the bank. Um, so you have to pick your spot to try to learn to swim quite carefully. And of course, if not many other people can swim, then there aren't many other people to teach you to swim. Hmm. It, it, the, the, the water question also brings into, into mind the, one of the other sort of hoary ideas we have about this period is that people didn't like to wash very much because you found evidence of people drowning whilst washing. So that rather goes against that, that, sort of, that tradition of the people who, who weren't very keen on using water to clean themselves. Yes, uh, we found quite a number of people who drown uh, just washing their hands and faces. Medical advice in the 16th century was that taking a bath was bad for you because taking a bath opened the pores in your skin and that was when lots of diseases could enter your body. Um, and so uh, the advice to people who could afford it was that it was much better to change their underwear uh, than it was to have a bath. Uh, Workmen, on the other hand, didn't have a change of shirt, uh, and we found quite a number of workmen, uh, mostly agricultural workmen, but also workmen travelling um, or workmen in towns, who got very hot working in uh, the summer uh, time and would then, presumably at the end of a day's work, 
go into rivers and ponds, strip off and go into rivers and ponds in order to get clean. Uh, and numbers of them drowned, presumably either because the water was very cold and they had a heart attack, or sometimes maybe they jumped in, uh, hit their heads on the bottom, or they got tangled up in weed uh, or, or, or whatever. It's interesting that the, the, the book on how to swim, written by Everard Digby uh, in the 1580s, shows one of the best methods of entering the water to be to run up to the bank, put your hands behind your neck, and jump in, turning a somersault so that you land flat on the water on your back, which doesn't sound a terribly safe way of entering water to swim. Um, so if that's what people were being told to do, then uh, maybe some of the accidents happened with people trying to get into the water that way. So it's, so it's also, you know, aside from some interesting data about how people died, it's also giving you some interesting information about how people lived and informing us about social life at the time, about, you know, telling us that perhaps washing was more commonplace than, than, we, than we would previously have thought. Exactly. So that's a clear uh, finding where uh, it's not evident what other kind of information would tell you about workmen going for a wash because the other sorts of records that we have about uh, everyday life in the 16th century they're either financial records where you might know what somebody's paid for working on a farm but they won't say anything about them going for a wash at the end of the day uh, or they're legal records about uh, crimes that people do to each other but if going for a swim doesn't involve assaulting anybody or owing them any money uh, or, or whatever then that won't come up in those kinds of records um, um, diaries are only just starting to be written in the 16th century and they tend to be written by uh, a few well-educated people uh, and uh, as the diary writing tradition develops in the 17th century people are often writing uh, about their spiritual experiences or books they've read rather than whether they went for a, a swim in the river. Uh, so this will tell us the kinds of things that we can't really get at any other way uh, and it also tells us details that we can't find out from other things like what time of day people did things or what day of the week people did things or what time of the year so for example with the football accidents that we've been working on almost all of them happened in February and Shrove Tuesday is a classic time for playing football uh, in the Middle Ages um, Interestingly, none of our accidents actually happened on Shrove Tuesday, but a lot of them happened in February. Uh, whereas archery accidents, for example, uh, spring and autumn were said to be the best times for doing archery practice because it wasn't too hot, but it wasn't too cold and windy. And spring and autumn are when the great majority of archery accidents happen. Aside from, uh, from, from the, the, the water hazard, what other particularly perilous activities were people undertaking? You've mentioned sports. So, so what sort of things were people doing that you're finding that, that, that they were coming to, to grief on? The other very big one, apart from water, um, is interestingly something which is quite like today, which is transport. So we have a, a lot of people having accidents with carts and wagons. Um, and uh, one of the reasons for that is that the carts and wagons, of course, are being pulled by animals, which are uh, even less under people's effective control than motor vehicles are. Um, so we have, for example, people uh, taking uh, carts full of um, harvested crops, I think in this case peas, into barns to store them, but then trying to back the cart round inside the barn and losing control of the horse so that the cart then uh, pushes the person up against the wall uh, and crushes them. It's much easier to run yourself over with a cart than it is to run yourself over with a, with a motor vehicle. Uh, so we have lots of people standing by carts, driving the horses along and then tripping over and falling under the wheels of the cart that they themselves are, are driving. Uh, or people uh, driving carts or wagons with horses or oxen and riding on the horses or oxen but then falling asleep and falling off and being injured in the fall or, or running themselves over. 
There's a lot of transport-related uh, accidents, and of course accidents riding horses uh, as well, which is the other prime way of, of, of getting around. Uh, and also some people of quite low social status riding horses. So one thinks of horse riding as something that gentlemen do, uh, but actually we've got labourers who fall off horses uh, while, while riding from A to B. Um, so transport is a big one. Other kinds of working accidents, so agricultural work accidents with uh, large piles of uh, hay falling over on top of people, or people uh, digging marl out of pits to spread on the fields, uh, people coal mining. Then we've also got uh, work-related accidents with the kinds of industries that are dangerous now, so coal mining would be an example uh, of that, or building work. Um, or people working with trees, falling out of trees, whether they're picking fruit or trying to uh, cut timber, um, uh, and people working with machinery. So we have numbers of people who have accidents with water mills and windmills where, particularly if they're wearing loose clothing, the clothing gets caught in the machinery and they're then pulled into the machinery uh, of, the, of the mill uh, with these very big uh, wooden uh, wheels and wooden cogs that, that link into them so that they can get pulled into the machinery quite easily and then uh, break arms or, or, or uh, whatever else. Okay, so the, the coroner's doing these inquests, the jurors, they're, they're finding all these accidents, they're seeing the evidence and they're making notes about it and, you know, and, and assessing what's happening. Do they then go on to do anything beyond that, or does anyone, not just the coroners, go on to, to do anything to try and counter this, to put in place some Tudor health and safety measures? Very occasionally there are signs that the jurors seem to be sending a message to, for example, someone who has uh, a roadway next to something very dangerous which isn't fenced in, uh, the jurors seem to be saying this road is dangerous to, or this open pit or whatever, is dangerous to the king's or queen's subjects and the implication is therefore some kind of safety measure should be taken. Uh, more often there are signs that there is some attempt at a safety measure but it just hasn't worked very well. Um, we know for example with fetching water that London parishes in the later 16th century were trying to move from having uh, open wells to having uh, parish pumps instead which are obviously much safer because you can't fall down the hole. Um, so, for example, we have someone who falls down uh, a well which is in process of being built and the jurors explain that it didn't yet have any sort of rim round it, so it was much easier to fall down. Uh, and also that uh, while it was in process of being dug, it was covered over with wooden planks and with hurdles, wattle fences that you would use for penning in sheep, uh, but that because it was dark, the man in question didn't realise the well was there and just fell down the gap between the, the coverings. So there's clearly some attempt to make things safer for people, um, but it doesn't always work. Uh, and the same is true of uh, machinery or uh, other ways of doing things. So we have someone who's up on the moors in Yorkshire trying to lift a large stone uh, using a uh, a windlass because that will be easier and safer presumably than trying to manhandle it but then one of the ropes breaks uh, and the stone falls on him uh, because of the the failure of the equipment which he's trying to use in order to do the job safely. Surprisingly some of the people killed in these accidents leave wills. Um, now sometimes that's because they'd made a will earlier and it must have been just in a chest in their house or whatever and was got out and, and uh, put into effect once they died. If you had significant property in the 16th century, um, then advice would be that you should 
do that, have a will ready. Most people seem to have made wills only on their deathbeds if they made wills at all. So some of these people who have accidents and die a few days later leave wills. Um, and some of those are clearly very hurried, which gives a sense of what's on people's minds when they've suddenly had a terrible accident and realise they may be about to die. The other ones where you can't really tell from the records, but it must have been extraordinarily distressing, is the deaths of small children, uh, where we have large numbers of drownings, but also uh, children run over uh, and other kinds of accidents. Um, and uh, one of the most famous ones of those where we found the coroner's inquest is the death of George Lord Dacre, who's a young boy who is the heir to extensive estates in the north of England. Uh, and he has an accident with uh, what seems to be either a, a, a vaulting horse or a horse on which to practice learning to ride, a wooden horse, which he's trying to move and then collapses on top of him. And uh, that's something which must have been an enormous shock to the family, um, and in particular to the Duke of Norfolk, in whose house he was living at the time, because he was going to be married to the Duke of Norfolk's daughters. And so we have the details of where in the Duke of Norfolk's house the accident happened, uh, and uh, exactly how uh, everything went wrong for this small boy uh, trying to both to play but also to learn how to grow up and be a Tudor aristocrat. Do you see uh, the, the political picture coming through at all in these reports? Do you see any of the, the sort of the national events that we know happening in the 16th century coming through into, into the into these local stories? There are points where these. Uh reports of everyday tragedies linked to the really great events in Tudor history. Uh, so one example of that would be the death of little George Lord Dacre. Uh, it's said that one of the reasons why the Duke of Norfolk didn't get involved in the 1569 rebellion against Queen Elizabeth was that he now stood, because young George Lord Dacre had died, he stood to inherit the Dacre estates in the north of England. Um, whereas George Lord Dacre's uh, relative who claimed those estates, Leonard Dacre, did get involved in the rebellion. Um, in the same way, we found the inquest report on uh, Amy Dudley, uh, Amy Robesart, the wife of Robert Dudley, uh, Queen Elizabeth's favourite, who uh, notoriously fell down the stairs and broke her neck, uh, and people at the time wondered whether she'd been pushed or not. We found the inquest report on her, which showed she had two large dents in her head. Uh, of course, it still doesn't tell you whether she got the two large dents before she was found at the bottom of the stairs or whether she got them uh, falling down the stairs. Um, and it sheds light on uh, unusual aspects of great events. So, for example, we have someone who is uh, a mariner. He's involved in the May Day celebrations for Queen Elizabeth in 1559 uh, at the start of her reign. Um, he's in a boat on the River Thames with gunpowder, presumably going to set off some great firework display or something on the river in order to entertain the Queen, and the gunpowder in the barrel starts to burn. He and his friends think that the gunpowder is going to blow up in the boat, so they all rush to the other side of the boat and the boat tips up and he drowns. So this is something which gives us everyday, very human stories which link in with the great events of Tudor history that we're normally used to reading about. Okay, last question. So you've got several years left to run on your project. Where's, where's the research going to take you? What, what areas will you be examining from here on in? Well, we've got about three years uh, still to run uh, on the project. The aim is to write a book about what all these accidents tell us about daily life. Uh, so far, we've only really processed about three years' worth of accidents, so we've got 97 years to go. Uh, we've photographed more than half the accident reports, so we're building up our body of material. And what we hope is that we'll be able to look at almost every area 
of life in the 16th century through these reports. So certainly at all sorts of different jobs that people did, uh, at all sorts of different uh, leisure activities that people had, at different aspects of the way that people travel, the way that people prepare food, uh, the way that people um, uh, interact with each other. for example, we've got um, Yorkshiremen wrestling in a churchyard on a Sunday afternoon, which must have been what people did uh, after church um, when they wanted a bit of entertainment uh, and everything was going well until a fourth man came along uh, through one of the others over the churchyard wall, having said, I can throw any of you over the churchyard wall, and one of them foolishly said, no, you can't. And then the man landed with the knife in his belt going through his elbow and... Uh, got a wound which meant that he bled to death before anyone could could uh, staunch the flow of the blood. So there are all sorts of areas of 16th century life that we can get into with these reports and we want to try to write a book that looks at as many of them as possible. Dr Stephen Gunn is a lecturer in modern history at Merton College, Oxford. You can read his feature on Tudor drowning in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine. That's all for this week's episode. All that remains is for me to wish you a Merry Christmas, assuming you've not been inspired by our feature on 17th century Puritan attitudes and decided to ban festivities in your household. We'll be back next week with a look at how history teaches us to live well. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the festive Dave Gibson. Thanks for listening. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.